All right. Well, I think we are mic'd and, and ready to go. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Maureen Conway. I'm the Executive Director of the Economic Opportunities Program here at the Aspen Institute. I'm delighted to welcome you to today's conversation in our Working in America discussion series. Um, work today in America is uh, not only a major activity of American life, but it's also an important value and source of identity for Americans. In today's economy, the greatest asset the majority of Americans have is their ability to work, since earnings from work is what supports most American families. Thus, work is both central to the economic situation of American families, and it's a strong value in American life and American um, public debate. But both the nature of work and the potential rewards from work have changed greatly over the past several decades in America, and in particular in the aftermath of the Great Recession, the diminishing returns to work have become an increasing uh, source of concern as more and, more and more Americans struggle to earn a livelihood. In the Working America series, we discuss the experience of work in America, particularly as it influences those who are struggling in today's economy, and we bring diverse speakers to offer their perspectives and ideas on how to address the challenges we see today. We're very grateful to the Ford Foundation, to the Charles Stuart Mott Foundation, and to the Cerdna Foundation for their support of this series. In today's conversation, we'll focus in particular on the experience of foreign-born workers or immigrants. Foreign-born workers are an important source of work in our economy today and account for about 16% of our workforce. Over the years, America's had a number of large waves of immigration, and many of us, if not foreign-born ourselves, probably don't have to go back too many generations to find uh, our forebears who were. So immigration is not new to us but we're in the process of a national conversation on the role of immigration in our society with immigration reform an active subject of discussion in Congress and uh, in the press. So it's an opportune time to consider the experience of immigrant workers today, the challenges they face, the opportunities they seek, and the contributions they make to our economy. We have a terrific set of speakers here to uh, lead us in this discussion, and um, we're also hoping that you will join the discussion. There'll be an opportunity for question and answer at the end, and you can also tweet about this, hashtag immigrant work. Um, I will now introduce our, our speakers to you. You have uh, materials in their bios, uh, so I'm not going to read any of that. I will just try to put uh, names to faces here a little bit. So uh, right next to me is Ana Avendano, Assistant to the President and Director of Immigration and Community Action for the AFL-CIO. Let's see, next to Ana is Charlene Dukes, President of Prince George's Community College. Uh, and. Uh, continuing on, we have Gustavo Torres, Executive Director of Casa de Maryland, then Audrey Singer, Senior Fellow, Metropolitan Policy Program at the Brookings Institution, and to lead us and moderate today's discussion, we're delighted to have Julia Preston, National Immigration Correspondent for the New York Times. So thank you all very much to be, for being here, and I will turn it over to you, Julia. All right. Thank you for coming. Really good to see you. I'm going to make a few comments to set us up, and then we'll start the discussion. Senator Jeff Sessions of Alabama is nothing if not tenacious. In the final days before the Senate vote in June to approve a comprehensive immigration reform bill, the Republican lawmaker held forth in a tireless marathon on the Senate floor, rising time and again to warn that the legislation was a disaster for the country. Here is how Mr. Sessions summed up his case. What we know for absolute certain, he said, is that this bill guarantees three things. 
instantaneous amnesty, permanent lawlessness, and a massive expansion in legal immigration that will reduce wages for working Americans. This legislation, he said, is a crushing blow to the working people of this country. Mr. Sessions said the bill would flood the labor market with immigrant workers at a time of high unemployment when more than 20 million Americans do not have regular jobs. The results, he predicted, would be unfair competition, lower wages, and more Americans squeezed out of their own economy. President Obama also deploys economic arguments in the immigration debate, but he makes the case in favor of comprehensive reform. In a, in a recent speech, the president said that reform, including a path to citizenship to, uh, for undocumented immigrants, would be a major economic boon. Immigration, the president said, is what has kept our workforce dynamic, our businesses on the cutting edge, our economy the strongest in the world. He said reform would make it easier for highly skilled, immigra high, easier for highly skilled immigrants and those who study at our colleges and universities to start businesses and create jobs here in America. The president said that immigration reform will ultimately increase overall U.S. productivity, resulting in higher GDP and higher wages. Bringing undocumented workers out of the shadows also helps to put a stop to, uh, to, to practices that undercut wages and worsen working conditions for American workers. If we don't do anything to fix our broken system, the president said, American workers will have to make do with lower wages and fewer protections. The fierce debate we are having over immigration is largely about the immigrant workforce in this country, both legal and undocumented, and its impact on the economy. In 2007, the last time that Congress tried to pass immigration reform, unemployment was significantly lower than it is now. Yet that legislation was defeated by an upswell of popular resistance, including from working class Americans. The labor movement was divided with many unions demanding to limit the number of immigrant workers, particularly guest workers, in the country. Today, unemployment at more than 7.6% is painfully high. Yet the economic arguments in favor of reform are gaining much more traction this year than they did six years ago. As in so many things in Washington today, the immigration debate is a duel between wildly divergent narratives about foreign-born workers. The panelists we have here today can give us a report on the realities. What, are, what work are immigrants doing? What are their training and education needs? What is the effect of undocumented status? What about millions of immigrants who are working legally? How would comprehensive reform affect the labor market? The figures suggest that this generation of immigrant workers brings many virtues and also some worrisome deficits. They bring dedication to work, family, and community, and the zeal to rise that so long has fueled American progress. Many immigrants bring useful skills, but this cohort also includes many low-wage workers with low education, limited English, large challenges raising their children in poverty, and other vulnerabilities. I hope we will have a candid discussion about this today. Um, I think I'm going to, uh, I'd like to start with Gustavo. Gustavo, can you tell us about Casa de Maryland and the immigrant workforce that you see every day? Describe what kind of work they're doing and how you see them fitting into the labor force in Maryland? Absolutely. Thank you very much, Julie. I really appreciate that. 
And uh, good, good afternoon, all of you. Again, Gustavo Torres working uh, with Casa de Maryland. We are the largest Latino and immigrant organization around the Washington, D.C. area. We have more than 40,000 members. This is the power that we have in our community. And we believe that it's very essential and the way how we do it, the services that we provide and the mission of the organization is not only provide high quality services to our community, but also build power. Uh, so we combine providing uh, workforce development, English classes, computer classes, legal representation, as well as health and human services. But also we have a huge component of uh, organizing, to organize the community to make sure that we fight for probably the most important issue of our generation for Latinos and many immigrants and the great majority of the which is immigration reform. So that, that is what we're doing right over here. We believe, as uh, President Obama mentioned, that we uh, are going to make a huge difference in the market, in the economy, when we passed immigration reform. And I will insist, it's not if we pass. We believe that we are going to pass immigration reform. 2012, we believe, make it different. And that is the reason why we believe that we are like now 50% in, in our way to pass immigration reform. Immigrants and Latinos vote huge uh, majority for President Obama because he promised immigration reform. He promised that he's going to pass. So now I believe that the Republican listen very careful, at least the leadership in the Republican Party uh, believe that it's very important to pass immigration reform. And that is the reason we believe that uh, during the summer and, and uh, during the fall, we are going to pass immigration reform. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Charlene, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about uh, your role in, uh, in Prince George's County and the type of uh, workforce preparation that you are doing uh, in the community college. Okay. And I also how, uh, to the extent to which you have an immigrant population. community in your... Mm -hmm. Uh, again, I'm Charlene Dukes, the president of Prince George's Community College. We serve approximately 44,000 students. We're the fourth largest community college in the state of Maryland. And we are probably serving today a little under 8,000 immigrant students between a variety of credit and non-credit programs. When we talk about credit programs, by far the majority of our immigrant students are enrolled in health care programs. Uh, whether it's nursing, respiratory therapy, uh, uh, radiation therapy, nuclear medicine, and the like on the credit side. On the non-credit side, we're talking about programs like certified nurse assistant, uh, geriatric training, phlebotomy, uh, you know, as we look at those kinds of programs. What we find is that many immigrant students want to go into healthcare. And, uh, uh, and there are, in some cases, some language barriers or some skill deficiencies. So we've been able to work out programs on, on both sides of the house, credit and non-credit, that allow students to get the kind of uh, skill improvement that they need and to move in those programs at a, at a fairly rapid pace. We also are part of a five community college consortium in Maryland where we've adopted what we call My Best. Uh, it's based on a model out of the state of Washington where students are getting both uh, language training as well as skills training within the same uh, <laughs> academic classroom that will enable them to move out into the world of work and really begin to look at family sustaining wages. Could you give us a little sense uh, before we uh, move on uh, 
where your foreign-born students are coming from and what languages they're speaking? Well, it's interesting that, um, and I, I would say to all of you that it's quite frankly all over the map of the world. We have, uh, in addition to certainly uh, students who are Hispanic, uh, Latino, uh, certainly speaking uh, Spanish language, we're also talking about immigrant students from the continent of Africa that uh, uh, they are coming in and we find that uh, it's also interesting that most African students are enrolled in credit programs while uh, most uh, Hispanic uh, uh, Latino students are enrolled in non-credit short-term training programs. Do you have any way of determining of your student body if, they, if there are undocumented students among your on, sure, on because of the Maryland DREAM Act, we are required to keep that kind of uh, documentation on students who come in. Now, the, the good thing about the uh, DREAM Act in Maryland, and it's a, uh, a partnership that uh, Gustavo and uh, Casa de Maryland and Prince George's Community College have had for a long time. Uh, with both uh, with the previous president of Prince George's, we've been certainly working with the uh, legislation in Maryland to get the, the Maryland Dream Act passed, which became a reality for us. So we are required by virtue of that law to keep uh, statistics on students and to be able to report that information. Now, the good thing about it, however, is that students get to attend uh, colleges and universities in Maryland at the same cost as resident uh, 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 students or, or students who are uh, citizens in uh, the country. So we've been able to reduce a barrier, a financial barrier, through that DREAM Act. We've also been able to determine through uh, private philanthropy whether or not students are available uh, or meet the criteria for other kind of financial resources that can certainly help them as they move through the institution. Great, thank you. Audrey, can you give us a little bit of an overview of, of what the immigrant workforce looks like in the United States? Sure, I will take a, a big step back and talk about kind of national level picture of the immigrant labor force. Um, and there's a couple key things uh, that, are, uh, that are important to keep in mind. Two big structural changes in this country. One is changes to our economy that we've seen in the, in the indu industries that we are um, building and those that are going away. And that's been going on for quite some time and heading into a, a greater dependence on knowledge-based industries and occupations. That means our labor force has to shift somewhat. The second big structural change is our demography. And um, we are, uh, we're aging very rapidly. Well, we will be over the next couple of decades as the baby boomers move through retirement age and start to shrink the labor force. And so what we will see over the next several decades is that almost all of the growth of the labor force at all skill levels will come from immigrants and their offspring. So as we move forward, that's where the growth is going to be because the native-born population uh, is not growing as fast as the immigrant population through both migration and birth rates. So there's going to be a demand for um, higher skilled workers. We have already been seeing that. And it's not just the U.S. that's changing, but 
global economies around the world are also changing and moving in these directions. So the U.S. has been lucky in attracting immigrants and in fact um, more immigrants have been coming to the U.S. and are in the U.S. now than, uh, than in any other country. One-fifth of the world's migrants live in the United States and they're a key part of our economy and our, and our labor force. So I can go into a few more things yeah. if you'd like. Go ahead. Um, the thing that makes it difficult right, right now for us is there's some uncertainty in terms of our um, economic growth, where that's going to be coming from. Unemployment rates, as Julia pointed out, are high nationally and very high in some localities and among uh, certain workers in various occupations and industries. And so it, it's a, and, and we have some uncertainty about how we're going to change our immigration policy. Um, not whether we're going to get things, <laughs> but how it's going to change. And the emphasis right now and the discussions right now are how to uh, create a set of programs and policies that fit better with our economic moment and our trajectories. So these are kind of the big things that we have going on. But just generally speaking, in terms of immigrants nationally, they make up about 13% of the U.S. population. They're over 16% of the labor force, and this has grown over time. Uh, back in, in 1970, a low point of immigration in this country, they were about 5% of the population, about 5% of the labor force. So over time, it's grown. Um, at the same time, this, the educational levels and skills of immigrants has shifted and changed. Um, we now have more immigrants in the United States with a bachelor's degree or more than those without a high school education, which is something relatively new. In 1980, just 19% of working age immigrants had a bachelor's degree or more. Nearly 40% had not completed high school. In 2010, it was 30% with a, a college degree or more, and 28% without a high school diploma. So things have definitely shifted. And part of that shift, um, towards higher skilled, more highly educated immigrants uh, has to do with the demand that I mentioned of uh, the changing um, industry structure in the United States, but also programs like the H-1B, which brings in highly skilled workers. Um, most of, uh, almost all of them have to have a bachelor's degree or more uh, as a, a condition of entry, supplies hundreds of thousands of visas every year. Um, in addition, the number of international students who come to the U.S. has tripled over the past couple of decades. About three-quarters of a million are currently in the United States. Many of them would like to stay or are able to uh, move from a student status to a worker status. So that's pulling the high-skill end up. Among lower-skilled immigrants, there's still a huge demand for workers who do a, a range of jobs. Um, because US born, the U.S.-born population is becoming much more educated. So these workers are drawn to the U.S. because there's a demand. Um, only 7% of U.S. Uh, working age population does not have a high school diploma. And as I mentioned, 28% of uh, their foreign-born counterparts lack that credential. Um, so. In, in, in terms of absolute numbers, they're about the same, native and foreign-born, uh, same number of immigrants. But um, there's still this, this demand for lower-skilled workers. So 
what we see is um, a changing underlying structure, changing sources of immigrants, and uh, where they're putting themselves into the U.S. labor market is also interesting. And uh, some of my work has looked at some of the industries where immigrants are overrepresented, and I've looked at four primarily low-skilled industries, four primarily high-skilled industries where immigrants are overrepresented, accommodation, agriculture, construction, and food service on the lower-skilled end, and high-tech manufacturing, information technology, healthcare and life sciences on the high-skilled end. Together, in those eight industries, 37% uh, of all workers are, are immigrants. Mm -hmm. So we've got some strong representation in certain industries mm -hmm. and at different skill levels um, that we can, we can continue to talk about. Okay. Great, thank you. Anna, you are living and speaking with and, and participating with the labor force every day in your work. And the AFL has had a dramatic transformation uh, in recent years in its attitude towards immigrants and, and, and the politics of immigration. So how, what, what do you see in the labor force and, and, and the, the role of, that immigrants are playing now in, in, in the unionized labor force? Well, first I want to say thank you to the Aspen Institute and to, um, hi to everyone here. I'm, ha I'm really happy to be with, with all of you today. So immigration is a really complicated issue. Um, the AFL-CIO represent, there is an umbrella organization for 57 labor unions that represent workers in the entire world of work. High-skilled workers, construction workers who are both high-skilled and lesser-skilled, agricultural workers. And within this world of work, immigration has always been, you know, it implicates economics, it's a political issue, and it's really a very emotional issue. Um, and I don't think that we should forget that, because often when you, we talk about immigration policy, those of us who want to stay on the policy side of things, the rational side of things, just in, engage in a lot of losing arguments. So what we've learned over the years is that we really need to recognize that it's a hard issue for many people who for a long time have been living in a world that has really pitted immigrants against everyone else. Mm -hmm. And uh, the approach that we've taken for more than a decade now is that we really need to work on behalf of working people. That when, as long as we have a two-tiered workforce where some workers have access to rights and some don't, all workers suffer because standards and conditions are lowered for everybody. Um, and it was that um, acceptance and you know, theory that really moved us uh, in, the early two th in the late 90s, early 2000s, to really look at the issue of immigration policy very differently than in the past. So it wasn't just an issue of controlling the labor market. You know, the fewer workers you have in a labor market, the more bargaining power those workers have. It was really an issue of the global economy, um, the, the demographics, and really recognizing that to grow a strong, powerful movement of working people, we needed to embrace and uh, welcome immigrants into our movement. We, our policy shifted formally in the early 2000s, and it's been evolving, um, and it's been happening in partnership with worker centers. We work very closely with the National Day Labor Organizing Network, of which Gasland Maryland is a member. We work very closely with domestic workers, really recognizing that many workers, by virtue of not just their immigration status, but their employment status, 
don't have access to collective bargaining and really have had to think about new ways of bringing power and economic power to these workers. Domestic workers are excluded from the National Labor Relations Act. Day laborers are often independent contractors, also excluded for the protection of labor law. So working with these worker populations has really changed the way that we see the future of the labor movement. We're going through some, some changes now as we head into our convention in the fall, and it's been really, really, really interesting to work much more closely with uh, all of these, what people are calling uh, alt-labor groups, um, and who are really young, energetic, creative uh, organizations that represent mostly immigrant workers in labor markets where, for the most part, unions don't exist. Um, and under conditions that are, you know, at best often precarious. The National Employment Law Center did a study with several academics um, of the low-wage labor market of Los Angeles, Chicago, and New York in 2009. And I think that you featured it in one of your um, presentations. And that, what that study found was that in these low-wage labor markets, um, that uh, there is virtually no compliance with minimum wage and other basic laws. That, that, the, that it goes across sectors, basically. Car wash workers, taxi workers, domestic workers, construction workers are all suffering violations of law um, to, the to, to the point of where in these just three, these three cities, low-wage workers, a quarter of whom are immigrant or undocumented, um, lose $57 million a week to wage theft. Um, that's a lot of money, and it's a, re a whole lot of money to workers who are making the minimum wage. So really, for us, working with immigrant workers on fixing the immigration system at the same time that we're fixing this badly broken uh, and weak labor law system is crucial to really restoring the right of workers to, to bargain. Let me just follow up and then we'll come back here. But this question of high unemployment and competition for jobs and how do, how do, how do you feel that, how does that play out within the, within the labor movement? Is there a lot of tension there or has the tension subsided, uh, uh, the, the perception that the immigrants are somehow the other or the, the unfair competitor? I, you know, we had a, a, a wonderful event yesterday at the Federation where Jose Antonio Vargas um, spoke about, it was about the value of citizenship, and he said something that really resonated with everybody. He said immigrants are not trying to take a share of the pie, we're trying to grow the pie. And I think that that's how people are looking at it, recognizing now that it really isn't about competition for really lousy jobs. It's about working together to improve conditions so that all workers benefit. Unemployment is much higher in some sectors than in others. Unemployment, uh, there is long-term unemployment in construction, for example. And construction workers are having a really hard time. But that's true of construction workers who are unionized and not unionized. And even in, within the sector of construction, the competition between immigrants and undocumented doesn't really exist. I mean, it's not like you have crane operators who are competing with day laborers for those jobs. We've done a lot of member education over the past few years. We, we run something we call Immigration University, where we have weekly webinars and we have materials available for our members. 
And it's been really, when you talk this issue through with people, people understand that um, it wasn't immigrants who caused the financial crisis. It wasn't immigrants um, who brought us where we, the, to the, this horrible ec economy that we're in right now. And that we're all better off by just recognizing that. And again, I mean, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but working together to fix both the labor law system, the financial system, the immigration system. Gustavo, you work in a climate where there has been, at times, very intense opposition, I think, to your work, if I'm not mistaken, in Maryland. And how much of that is, do you think, is based on a perception that the immigrants are somehow unfair, disloyal competition in the labor market? How much of the, how much of the tension that you've seen uh, over immigration in your work has to do with the labor market or a perception of the labor market, and how much of that is true or not? Yeah, I think that is, uh, is definitely a lot of wrong perceptions about that, absolutely. And we need to recognize it's called racism also, right? That they see our color of skins and they don't want to uh, integrate uh, the immigrant community and in particular Latinos and Africans, right? So that is kind of a reality that we face. And our challenge and our responsibility is to make sure that we integrate uh, the immigrant community to the society. So that is the reason why we have this uh, very critical and important programs uh, to make sure that we integrate uh, the community. And I just want to refer to uh, what I call the most uh, successful experience that we have uh, to integrate little by little the immigrant community and is with Prince George Community College. Uh, we believe that is uh, the partnership that we have developed for several years and with Dr. Dukes, I think that is extraordinary, not only with the Dreamers, which is a very important uh, component of our uh, members uh, to make sure that we provide the services first to pass the legislation. Of course, that was an extraordinary victory for our families and our community in Maryland and all around the nation, but also to make sure that they go to the college. So is the there, dreamers is, are. Does anyone need a definition of what a dreamer is? Does everyone know what we're talking about when we talk about a dreamer? Okay, yeah, go dreamer ahead. Dreamer is a dreamer. <laughs> to clarify, <laughs> happy to be an immigrant dream. So anyway, um, we're talking in this case, we're talking about a particular age and, and immigration exactly. status Absolutely. category of young people. Yeah. So, um, but the another very important component of that is the adult. Mm -hmm. like how we are integrating the adult to the society, and we have this great relationship where Prince George Community College sent to our facilities. We have vocational center in our welcome center. We have seven welcome centers in Maryland. So Prince George Community College, as well as now we are entering an agreement with Montgomery mm -hmm. Community College, as well as Baltimore Community College, but mostly with Prince George Community College. They send the teachers to our facilities and they provide the classes. Now we started also with healthcare, but also in construction. It's more than a thousand adults, immigrants who have been integrated to that. And it's unbelievable. We have been tracking not only the education, but also the way how the salary increase when you complete mm -hmm. uh, the classes on coordination with Prince George Community College. It's got from $10 to $15 uh, per hour. 
is unbelievable, that extraordinary change that happened. So for us, that experience, and again, that for us is a, is a national model that, that we also, of course, are partnered with Ford Foundation uh, mm -hmm. to make sure that we share that experience with another different uh, organization around the nation to make sure that we integrate our community. That includes English classes as well, is very essential. We have a huge uh, you know, challenge with the English classes, so we're trying to make sure that we integrate our community in all levels. And finally, I, I want to mention another very, very important component of that. Right here in the Washington uh, DC area, we have a big challenge with people who are already legal permanent residents. We have more than 450,000 immigrants in the Washington DC area who are ready to become US citizens. But because different reasons, they are not integrated yet. Uh, because again, the cost of the uh, application to become US mm -hmm. citizen, mm -hmm. the English is another challenge they face. And, and again, they don't know the how the system works. And so we have been developed um, another very important model and is to provide micro loans for the legal permanent residents to become U.S. citizens because we believe that open additional doors when you become U.S. citizens. And that is the reason why put a lot of an extraordinary efforts in partnership again with Montgomery College, with Montgomery County, the county executive play a very critical role and Governor O'Malley also is very engaged in this initiative. Charlene, do you want to talk about what that program looks like uh, from your side? Well, from our side, you know, what we're looking at is how do we provide training in partnership with Casa de Maryland, uh, things like uh, heating and air conditioning, uh, refrigeration, building maintenance engineers, uh, looking at things like basic drywall, uh, uh, ceramic tiling, uh, uh, conservation landscaping, uh, child care. So, and then some of the programs we spoke about earlier, when we talk about certified nurse assistant, phlebotomist, uh, geriatric workers, those kinds of things. Uh, but we're also talking about students who uh, also want to come into programs because they're looking at getting an associate degree, transferring to uh, four-year uh, colleges and universities, looking at the baccalaureate, master's degree, professional degrees, and beyond. Uh, the other thing that we're finding uh, rather interesting at the college is the number of uh, immigrants who, and I, and I think that uh, some of the th statistics were already provided, who are coming with high-level degrees, and especially in, in healthcare areas, but um, we're not accepting those licenses. So that people are having to come back for um, retraining or looking at other careers entirely. So clearly there's still some work that we have to do in terms of people entering the country and then how are we really giving uh, them opportunities based upon the credentials that they're bringing with them to the United States. The immigrants who are uh, uh, in your student body, is there any pattern or difference in terms of their ability to come to school and finish their work and, and, and do they face any special burdens? Well, I think that there are some barriers and I will tell you that most students, quite frankly, most students who are attending community college, whether they are um, native to this country or immigrants, have to work. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we live in a society now with the um, rising cost of tuition, 
uh, at, at colleges and universities. And many of you are probably aware that community colleges are open enrollment institutions. We're not necessarily looking at SAT scores or college entrance exams and uh, uh, you know what your grade point average is or whether you're newly out of high school or whether you're 50, 60, or 70 years of age. What we do is we say we take students in, we take them as they are, and our responsibility is to help them succeed in whatever career goal or potential that they're looking for. So, you know, we know that most students have to work. Students are working on average uh, probably about 30 hours a week and then trying to take either uh, part-time or full-time classes. And what does that mean in terms of the wraparound or supportive or intervention services that we have to have? Probably within the last uh, seven, eight years or so, we've created an international education center that's staffed by uh, uh, faculty and other professionals at the college that help with that sort of uh, transition to college and what is that all about? What are all of the supportive services are there? Uh, we see a, a huge increase in our courses where we're teaching English as a second language, either as credit courses or as non-credit courses. We're also seeing a large increase in the number of immigrant students who are coming in uh, wanting to study for and, and eventually take the, uh, the general uh, equivalency diploma or the GED, GED exam. And you know, even as part of um, deferred action, that if students come in uh, or immigrants come in and they're enrolled in GED programs, then that certainly can help them if, they're, if they were young when they came to this country. Did the, did the deferred action bring you a number oh, of students? Probably. Does everyone know um, what we're talking about when we're talking about deferred action? Okay. Yes, yeah, somewhere no. between. Okay, so the, the, so the president, uh, the Obama administration uh, uh, a year ago exactly uh, started mm -hmm. a program that gives uh, uh, deportation deferrals. It's right. a, it's, it, it, it is not an affirmative uh, legal status. This is uh, simply a, an administrative process that um, cancels the or suspends the uh, deportation Wait, process. Exactly. For, right. But it, the way that the administration did it, it allows these young immigrants to have work permits and together, and with those work permits, then that opens, that's a, that actually puts a document in their hand with which they mm -hmm. can then enroll in, in school and, and, uh, and they can apply for social security And they can apply for well. a social security number, yeah. So this right. is, this is uh, has, and I think we're up to close to 500,000 young immigrants. They're still undocumented, but these are, these are uh, dreamers who grew up in the United States right. and, and are, have become eligible for this program. Right. And so, so so in fiscal year um, 2013, for us that fiscal year just ended June 30th, we had close to 4,000 immigrants that were enrolled in adult um, education programs. That means that it was basic reading and math um, and GED preparation classes. About 65% of those students were Hispanic Latino. And then uh, when we talk about the uh, deferred action, Probably of that number, we're talking about uh, somewhere a little less than a thousand who've taken advantage of this opportunity. Right. Um, Audrey, do you have um, uh, any impression about the wage levels of our immigrant workforce? Any, uh, any insight into wh what we can say about where? 
particularly, I think, low-wage immigrants are fitting into the to the overall picture of our labor force? Sure. Um, this is definitely um, a big argument in the research community and among um, quantitative academics. Um, in general, I can tell you that um, uh, nationally, for example, the, the findings show that most immigrants don't compete with their native-born counterparts. But in certain regions and in certain industries and occupations at the local level, there may be some competition. And that is particularly the case in the lower end of um, wages and, and skills. So there, this tends to become more of an issue and uh, more of a topic of concern during high levels of unemployment, which is sort of where, where we are now. Um, and um, I think what's important about what Gustavo and Charlene pointed out is a lot of their programs, even though they're targeting immigrants by providing uh, language and, and basic education together, these are programs that are open for everybody. So it's, for, it's to bring in low-skilled workers across the board. It's, there are some special things for, um, for immigrant students. And I think um, there are lots of programs across the country that do this. The model uh, iBEST that yes. you guys are using in the state of Washington. In fact, um, the role of community colleges is really important in terms of bringing this group up. And um, community colleges, partnerships with employers, are there are a lot of examples of that that are really important for training uh, workers who are in high demand occupations, both immigrants and others. Uh, and, and, and this is a way that smart regions like this one here um, find workers <coughs> for employers who are in that region and, and bringing in um, uh, workers to improve their skills. So there's a regional effect on the economy if workers can move up the ladder, they're going to make higher wages, they're going to um, spend more money, they're going to do more for their community. Um, so this kind of investment seems to be an important part at the lower end. And on the higher end, I should say, um, there's some interesting things going on there as well. Um, uh, it looks like when you look at immigrants with a bachelor's degree or more in this country, um, about half of them uh, who are of working age and are working are overemployed for their jobs. So based on the average level of employment needed for the occupation that they're in. Among the native born, it's about one third. So it's pretty high there as well, but much higher among immigrants. And here there's some interesting um, movements and programs that are designed to unlock the skills. And we've mentioned a few of these kinds of things. Of, of highly trained professionals who are already living in the United States um, who have skills but they, they don't have, they have foreign credentials, they may not have the English language, so there's a barrier there. They've got um, a few things putting them, you know, their, their credentials are not recognized by U.S. employers. So there's some very nice um, uh, ways that uh, some organizations are working with these professionals to bring them into jobs, whether it's engineering or, or healthcare or technology, 
either into the occupations that they were trained for, or at least in the field that they were trained for, so that we don't have engineers driving taxis and um, nurses doing home health care and things like that. So if we think about it regionally in terms of what it does to regional economies, there seems to be um, uh, the idea that if you, if you build on the skills of the people that you already have, then you're gonna, your economy is going to improve regionally. Yeah, Gustavo. I just want to mention uh, something that we believe that is an extraordinary opportunities and challenges for the community colleges as well as for community-based organizations and all of that is when we pass immigration reform, remember that is going to be 11 million undocumented immigrants who are going to be legalized. And part of the requirements is that they need to learn English, right? They need to pay the taxes. And I think that we call that a, a tsunami that is coming, right? That we need to be prepared as community colleges, as community-based organizations, how we are going to welcome them and what kind of additional services. And I'm very sure that many of them, when they are going to have the social security and work authorization, they want to go to community college because that is part of the dream of our community, right? Education for us is mm -hmm. as essential as any another different uh, communities is the education. So for us, it's going to be a great opportunity uh, to make sure that we partner with many institutions as we're doing right now. Let me just, I'm gonna, and then I'm gonna ask the same question for Anna here. But to what extent, the, the, your folks who are undocumented, how much are they part of the community already and how much are they really living in the shadows? I mean, the description that you just gave is that this is gonna be this kind of big emergence, a wave, a tsunami, you said. But is, to what extent are, are your folks already integrated into the community despite the fact that they're undocumented? Well, we tried, and we're doing that for many, many years now, to integrate the community as much as we can, uh, regardless of your immigration status, right? But we need to recognize people are so afraid, yeah. very scared. Many of them have different names, false social security, because they need to work. Now we have this famous program called Secure Communities, that is we call unsecure communities, actually, uh, which pretty much target immigrants who are undocumented, and they deport, I mean, right now is 1.9 million immigrants who have been deported under this administration. 1.9 million. So using the famous secure community. So people are really, really scared. In the Washington metro area, and in particular in Maryland, we have, a friendly government, right? Local, you know, the county in Montgomery County, Prince George, uh, Baltimore City, even though we have an extraordinary relationship and they are welcome the immigrant community. But in other areas, it's like, you know, you are targeting and have been targeted, and not only people who are undocumented, they stab me because my color of skin when I don't have this jacket, right? <laughs> That is a reality. That is something that, that is we facing every single day in our community. So asking, answering your question about integration, not yet. And I think that that is the reason it's essential, it's critical to pass immigration reform with path to citizenship because we don't want second class anymore, right? We want to make sure that people have the opportunity to become U.S. citizens. It's so essential for our communities. Anna, did you want to yeah. talk about that? I mean, I do. What um, is immigration definitely. reform going to mean to the labor movement? 
Um, so let me just ask, answer your prior question, or actually pick up on what you said, the concept of living in the shadows. I think it's important that we sort of peel that apart a little bit, because it isn't just about people having to stay home or um, remain in the dark. It really is about whether or not people have the freedom to really improve their lives, their economic lives and their social lives. And the truth is for the undocumented right now, they don't. And it's by virtue of their immigration status. And from terms of the workforce, it isn't that immigration status has just locked workers into lousy jobs and prevented them from moving on or moving up the ladder. But it really is that those jobs, because workers haven't been able to improve those jobs, have remained lousy jobs. And again, that doesn't just affect the undocumented. The undocumented don't work in isolation. It affects entire labor markets. So let me give you an example of what that, what that means and why uh, immigration reform is so important to working people. Um, we're working on a case, we had been working on a case with the National Day Labor Organizing Network about a day laborer in Los Angeles who on a Friday uh, went to get his wages, as they often do, major contractor in Southern California. And instead of getting his wages, the contractor called the police, accused him of theft, and had him arrested. He was taken to jail, but he was run through secure communities, an immigration hit came up. And so even though the charges were dropped, he was still in detention and he was still put into removal proceedings. And when he was in jail, the day that he was just taken to jail, he met another day laborer who had worked for the same contractor, also demanded to be paid, and also had the police called on him. So this is not unusual, and I can tell you stories like this from New Orleans, which is happening right now. This is just happening a lot. And this situation isn't just about this one case, because the community hears about these cases. And coupled with the level of enforcement that we're seeing now of secure communities, 100, I mean, 1,400 people being deported a day, it really does have a chilling effect on the community at large. And so, yeah, so it keeps people in the, in the shadows without the ability to exercise their rights. That the, the day laborer was um, released on bond, so a good end to the story. But for every person like that, there are, what, 5, 10, 20, 100, we don't know, other workers who are still in detention because they sought not to exercise a right, not to protest or join a picket line, but just get paid. So we really need to fix the system in a way that doesn't just um, you know, legalize people into temporary, some temporary precarious status, but is really going to allow people to be a part of society, to have the ability to exercise full rights. Um, and that's what we're fighting for right now. Just to clarify, uh, because I think this is uh, something that people really don't understand about the Obama administration and its immigration policy. When they're talking about secure communities, this is a program that basically the Obama administration uh, proliferated the possibility of an immigration check into every law enforcement jurisdiction in the country. So anyone who is arrested for basically any reason in any law enforcement jurisdiction in the country can now be subjected to an immigration check at the same time that they're booked uh, for. And this is, we're talking about traffic violations. This, is, this, is, this, this spread the immigration enforcement system to a local level in a way that had never happened in the country before. 
And the result of that is, is the flip side of an administration that is advocating powerfully and convincingly for immigration reform, but at the same time is maintaining this very severe and, and uh, quite frightening for many immigrants uh, yeah. enforcement regime out in the country. I'm sorry, did you want to? Well, I, I wanted to, to uh, just reinforce his living in the shadows. Even when we talk about uh, uh, dreamers, high schoolers who by virtue of laws passed in Maryland or, or Dream Act in other states, when they come in, there are certain questions that have to be answered. And while that young person might be eligible for something, some of those questions are based upon what are your parents doing? Mm -hmm. So do they have a Maryland tax return? You know, can, they, mm -hmm. can you prove they've been paying Maryland taxes? And you can see students start to slowly walk away from the desk mm -hmm. because they then become concerned about their mothers and fathers or their grandparents or whatever that guardian is with whom they've been living uh, during these years. So I, I would agree that I think that there is, there is just a tremendous amount of this living in the shadows that we are just not even aware of. Um. I'm wondering, uh, one of the things we spoke about before the meeting started was the whole question of the role of employers in this labor force and the attitude of employers. You started to talk about that, but I'm wondering, Anna, if you could talk a little bit about the agreement that the AFL reached sure. with the Chamber of Commerce, because this was uh, a historic accord that really opened the way in a substantial uh, extent to the possibility of the Senate legislation that passed in June. Sure. Um, I'll summarize a year and a half of negotiations into a minute now. Um, You're familiar with some of the details. Yeah, sure, you can do it. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's an important point. Uh, we've been talking a lot about low-road employers here, and there's a lot of employers that are actually abide by the law and are facing very unfair competition from those who don't. And so in the employer community, there was a real desire to fix the law in a way um, that benefited you know, the Chamber of Commerce's membership. But because we were doing something uh, that Senator Schumer and Graham asked us to do also in a way that it could be um, a, an agreement among the labor movement and the employer community that we actually found some common ground. And because this process has actually been a stop and start on immigration reform over the past few years, we've actually started conversations a long time ago and had the luxury of just talking for a while. And we really approached these negotiations from um, the standpoint of, okay, what are the interests here that we're going to meet? In the past, it's, al it's always been negotiating numbers. You know, 20,000, too low, 100,000, too much. We never got anywhere. But this time we really tried to approach, and we did approach the situation, okay, what are the legitimate interests at issue here? And it was really about employers wanting to have access to workers when they need workers without a lot of bureaucracy and to have some ability to recoup whatever costs they make in that investment. I'm, I'm, again, I'm simplifying a lot. And for us, it was that the workers who come here have freedom, have mobility, so they don't have to stay in a temporary job that they don't have to stay temporary because we're not talking about temporary jobs here. We're talking about year-round jobs that last years. And that, and human beings are not temporary anyway, but putting that aside, that we wanted to have the ability for those who wanted to stay here and settle 
permanently, as so many have done, that there be some way that they could do that. And that's the basic agreement we reached that we created a, and that I should say importantly, I forgot, is we really wanted to have more transparency in this labor market. And right now, um, those of you who work uh, on immigration, it's very hard to get data. We know how many visas are issued, for example, but you don't know how many are actually uh, taken up, or there's just a lot of obscurity in this, in this world of immigration and labor market. So we wanted to have some transparency, which, you know, in our view, if, if the system was more transparent, it would have actually more acceptance among the general public. So the new program that we negotiated is called the W Visa Program. It has a new Bureau of Labor Market, Immigration Labor Market Research that's going to actually study low-wage labor markets and the impact of immigration on those markets and make recommendations to Congress. And a new type of visa um, that employers will be able to bring in workers into uh, lesser skilled occupations. Uh, for those, the wonky folks in the audience, it's ONET 1, 2, and 3. Uh, and that workers are going to, and employers will register jobs. It's not now the program works like somebody sponsors a worker and that employer sort of owns that worker when they get here. The new program is that employers will register jobs and then workers will come to those jobs or if they're already here, will be eligible for those jobs that are in the registry. Um, any worker who's in a W visa worker will be able to move among any registered job, even after a day of being in that job. Um, and they will get paid prevailing wage, and they will, under the point system in the bill, be able to adjust their status eventually once they gain enough points. So there's a chance to settle permanently, and importantly, that visa belongs to the worker. It does not belong to the employer, which so often happens now. Employers sort of file petitions for workers, but then hold it over their heads. So the worker has ownership of her visa. Um, the worker will be able to change jobs and um, be paid you know, decent wages um, and, and have decent working conditions. So that we saw that as a win-win, and that's in the Senate bill. That's so, in the Senate bill. And so now we are looking to the House of Representatives. So it gives you some idea <laughs> of this the you know, extraordinary assets that exist in this bill that passed the Senate and, and what is at stake in terms of the debate as it goes to, the, to a much more reluctant House. Did you want to summarize yeah. and, then, and I then I think we'll go to questions. Sure, can, thank you. Yeah. I just wanted to um, point out a couple of really important issues. Listening to Anna helped me um, think about them. Um, so we've got the situation where the federal government has the responsibility for creating laws that are um, that the the nation is bound to, and they can be very specific about workers and and um, employers. Um, but there's an interesting dynamic because where immigrants live, where they work, where they go to school. Uh, the neighborhoods they live in, the communities that they're part of, the you know everything that goes with it is all local. So all of the dynamism of immigrant integration mm -hmm. happens at the local level. And listening to Charlene and Gustavo, um, I think underscores mm -hmm. the really important fact that there are institutions and organizations in local areas that are already doing so much to integrate immigrants and to work with communities both native and, and immigrant communities together to make things better for 
obviously for everybody that lives in them. And I think we get, we get lost in this federal debate about changing the laws. Um, but really where immigration is lived and felt is in, in local areas. And there are very different mm -hmm. things happening across the country. And yeah. I will, uh, last week we had an event at Brookings where we brought in local level uh, leaders in municipal business and labor leader. And we talked about these things. And it was so enlightening to think about what's happening here at the federal level mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and how it relates back yeah the local level and then feeds back into the federal decisions that we're all making. I think that seems like a good place to open up for questions. Is that all right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Questions? Yes. Uh, do, do I need to? Yes. If you could just wait. Hi, it's Tom Jelton. Oh, hi, Tom. Hi, Julia. <laughs> <coughs> so we've been talking a lot about competition at the lower end. But Audrey, you mentioned four industries where immigrant workers were overrepresented at the higher end. And um, I'm curious about that aspect of the competition, and in particular, the idea of expanding. I, I assume the reason that immigrant workers are overrepresented in those industries is because the employers feel they can't find the workers they need to fill those positions um, more easily from native workers or whatever. <clears throat> and this brings up the issue of the expansion of the H-1B program. And if I'm not mistaken, this is one area that has been a little bit more difficult for the labor movement to deal with. There's been a lot of arguments from economists more sort of from the left who are very reluctant to see a big expansion of the H-1B program because they're not convinced that those jobs really are out of reach for um, <clears throat> for uh, non-immigrant workers. I guess the question for you, Anna, you certainly didn't mention that. How have you been able to deal with that issue of the H-1B, expansion of the H-1B program? So your voice sounds very familiar. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a completely different conversation from what we had with um, the business representing the lower end of the, the lesser skilled workforce. Um, for those of you who don't know, there was a very good section in S. 744, the Senate bill as it was introduced, um, that had built significant protections into the H-1B program, um, including the ability of employers to, the, the requirement that employers actually make jobs available first to workers in the United States and the local labor markets before bringing in uh, foreign workers, and that they be required to not displace workers. Because what we've seen happen too often is that employers are bringing in H-1B workers, having them be trained by local workers, and then sort of displacing them. Um, those provisions uh, were stripped from the bill as a result of an amendment that Senator Hatch sought, that the high-tech business had sought. And the political calculus was that Senator Hatch was needed to move the bill forward. You know, it's a difficult issue because um, as, you know, there are economists here who can deal with the economics of the issue much better than I. Um, but from the, just from the worker rights standpoint, I just want to emphasize that these are not temporary jobs. You know, these are not jobs that are going just to engineer, but most H-1Bs go to IT jobs. Mm -hmm. And IT jobs that you and you are preparing our current local workforce for. So I think there's somewhat of a disconnect between the policy debate and what's happening right here. That if there are real shortages in those occupations, nobody disagrees that, of course, employers should have the ability to bring in workers to do those jobs. 
But as long as we're, we want to train our workforce um, and we want to give opportunities to local people, I think that we really have to rethink the, the you know, from a policy standpoint, how much sense does it make to allow the sort of temporary, um, that the temporariness of the, of the labor force. And then on the other end of the, uh, in the sort of the skill set, we, we often hear you know, that the best and the brightest are coming in. And Sergey Brin from Google, or I forget all the other high tech guys, are just waiting to come in. And if we don't have more H1B visas, again, it, the part that we don't understand is the temporary nature of that argument. Why is it those temporary visas? In some way, and the you know the Silicon Valley, because the the business model there is really one of temporariness, right? Everybody is sort of creating these startups that they just exist, so they'll be bought up by Google. That's the kind of um, I'm kidding. I'm not kidding about yeah. that. Um, is that that? Yeah, that fits their business model. Whether that business model is a good thing for our society or not, I think is a different discussion that we haven't yet had. Did anyone else? Did I could say something. I'm. I. I often think about the difference between a temporary worker and a temporary job, and they're really different things. And it's not something that's built into our um, immigration mindset in any way. Um, but to just go a little bit deeper, I think there are, there's a lot of arguments going around the H-1B. Um, and, and you know better than I do on the inside what's been going on. Um, but one thing I wanted to point out, the W visa that Anna mentioned and the, and the provisions for the higher skilled H-1B uh, workers are very different. They're, they're set up very differently in the Senate bill. There were different battles that were won and lost there. And so what we don't know, let's say that the Senate bill becomes law, magically. Um, <laughs> what we don't know is how the increases and the modifications to uh, those provisions in bringing in workers, expanding them in some ways, and making some permanent whether that will reduce the need for more temporary workers or, or larger numbers of temporary workers, whether we'll just continue to see a lot of people coming in because of business models, um, whether that will change the, the labor force on the ground enough to, to move um, uh, the numbers in, in certain ways. So I think there's a lot of open questions there that we, we won't necessarily know the answer to unless we implement something. Yes. So just as a follow-up question to Tom's excellent question on H-1B visas, uh, my name is Gautam Ramchandani. Um, I run an advisory firm that helps organizations unleash the potential of disenfranchised populations, such as undocumented aliens and if you call them, want to call them immigrants, whatever. Uh, and I guess the question is, if one were to make an economic argument for uh, immigration reform, there are all kinds of arguments, human arguments and other you know, non-economic arguments. But if you were to stick just by the economic arguments, on the one hand, you've got a few million high-tech jobs that are unfulfilled, even though there are 20 million people unemployed. Uh, latest numbers I saw is that it, there's at least a couple of million jobs out there that the high-tech employers said they can't fill because those skills aren't available in the U.S. Uh, on the other end, you've got the low-skilled folks uh, that are, you know, 
7 to 11 million undocumented uh, immigrants. Uh, if they were to be documented, obviously they would con contribute a lot more to the economy. So my question to all of you that study this kind of phenomena, uh, what is the value creation potential that could be unleashed on the lower end with the 7 to 11 million uh, low service, low skilled folks? And on the higher end, what the one to one to two million high tech jobs that need to be uh, need to be filled, and what kinds of policies can you address to address those two different ends of the spectrum? Thank you. You wanna? Well, I think I'm just I I'd be really interested in what Audrey's take on this is, but you know, what I think what we've been talking about here is how to uh, create economic opportunities for folks on the lower end of the wage scale and the skill set to be able to someday have access to some of those jobs on the higher end of the wage scale and skill set. That's the challenge here. That's the, the balance that we were all trying to make here, but I think you can. Um, you know, I think one thing is employers always say that they can't find workers. <laughs> right. And part of it is that they can't find workers in the region that they're in. Part of it is they can't find workers with, um, with the wages that they want to hire them. Um, they can't find workers who fit into very specific technical um, uh, occupations and skill sets, which are changing all the time. I understand now in, in, the, in the tech field, it doesn't really matter what your credentials, your formal credentials are, but that employers want to know certain things like, do you work in the cloud? These are the ways that people distinguish workers. So. Um, you know, to put a number on it, I, I can't give you a number. There are lots of people that try to do that, but I'm not an economist. Um, but I do think that um, that when we when pe when workers are working in the formal sector are are getting um, wages that are uh, um, average or above average for their occupation, they end up contributing more, and that is how we grow the economy. And so. I think, uh, you know, those are hard well, answers. Wait, I think, I, yeah, I think we need, because we have a few. Uh, yes. Oh, uh, yeah. Why don't we go back there, and then we'll come over here. Yeah. Thank you. Michael Livingston, Interfaith Worker Justice. Uh, you talked about, Gustavo, a, a tsunami that will take place when legislation is passed uh, that will be positive for those who are on a path to citizenship. Uh, I think there's another tsunami that we ought to acknowledge, and I don't hear enough of this kind of realistic talk about the effects of immigration reform. Uh, and it's for the workers who won't qualify, for the workers who can't meet the continuous employment requirement of the bill, for the workers who can't meet the income levels, 100% uh, of poverty level, 125% as they move from RPI uh, to LPR. Uh, I, I just think this discussion that I've heard in many different public settings, as well as private ones, doesn't fully enough acknowledge what's going to happen to the person at Union Station making $8.75 an hour for the last 23 years, uh, who clearly isn't going to get on this path and maybe never complete it. Well, thank you for bringing the voice of the voiceless, really. That, that is going to be a huge, huge challenge. Remember the uh, Senate legislation 
say that everybody that um, arrived to our country on December 31st, 2011, right? Mm -hmm. So they qualified in one way or another to uh, have the work authorization. But then we have at least, the estimated at least from 2011, 31st, December, to now is like more than half a million people who don't qualify. Plus I'm very sure that it's another issue that probably the projection is probably between you know, 1.5 to 2 million immigrants who are not going to qualify for the uh, legalization. That is a huge issue. I mean, if the idea is to resolve once and for all the situation of people who are undocumented, at least with that proposal or with this legislation that the Senate passed, we are not going to accomplish that. We are still hopeful that probably as a part of the compromise, we can resolve many of those issues. But it's going to be very, very difficult. In Maryland in particular, I want to refer about two different very important um, action that we took thinking about that. Number one, of course, the DREAM. The DREAM uh, legislation that we helped to pass in Maryland is for everybody, regardless of the immigration status, to go to college. So for those people who don't qualify, they still can go to Prince George Community College or to Montgomery College or another different colleges in Maryland, even that you don't qualify for the, for the legalization. And number two, that was another extraordinary victory, is the driver license. We passed the driver license in this year as well for everybody, regardless of the immigration status. And that is a very, very important element and critical component and tool for our, our families who are going to be undocumented. It's going to be super difficult, very, very difficult for those families who are going to be undocumented because they are going to be even targeted even worse. Because if you are not having document, when we pass the legislation, so the idea is that we need to remove you. And many of them are families who have been here for 20 years, for 30 years, and they don't qualify because they have a small criminal record, right? Like they, they have some small criminal record and they don't qualify because that. So it's going to be very, very difficult situation. Can I, can I just add a little bit yeah, to that? Yeah, go ahead. So the Congressional Budget Office score of the bill, um, uh, they did their analysis and they estimate that eight of the 11 million people will be legalized by the bill. Mm -hmm. And our view has always been, as Gustavo said, that you know, we need something swift and really broad and inclusive because if we replicate uh, the current situation through new legislation, we're not actually fixing the problem. So we need to make sure that that population that is excluded is as small as possible. I think one of the big problems here is that the bill requires that three misdemeanors or one aggravated felony under immigration law or one felony would exclude someone from the law. And if you've been living in Arizona or in Alabama, um, that is going to be a serious problem. So we're looking at ways of working within this, in, this, in the state context for people to maybe be able to open those convictions um, and do something on the state level to address them. Uh, and then the other thing is that we we, we recognizing that millions of workers are not going to leave. They're not going to leave. They have families here. They have, mm -hmm. they have a, this is the only place they know now. And that if they're going to continue to live and work, as Gustavo said, they need driver's licenses. They need the opportunity mm -hmm. to go to school. But they also need protections on the job. And so this is a secret. Please don't tell anyone who has anything to do with the House. <laughs> 
Um, but there were really good worker protections in the Senate bill. There are protections that, um, that apply across the board, whether documented or undocumented. It fixes the Supreme Court case that denied the undocumented essentially the right to have uh, remedies when they are unlawfully fired. Um, and the, the, our, our approach is like, look, workers are going to have to be able to organize to improve their lot in life. And the best we can do right now is to create the legal structures that allow them and then work with them and civil society at large to make sure that they have access to those and can enforce those rights. I think we're at 1.30. <laughs> Can I take one more question? Yeah, go ahead. So, hi, my name is Jelani. I'm with the Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service, and I have a question for Anna on E-Verify. Uh, so, there are provisions in S744 that um, where if employers give documents to undocumented workers to qualify for um, registered provisional um, RPI mm -hmm. status, um, they won't be criminalized mm -hmm. or be liable. Mm -hmm. But I was wondering how it really protects workers that might be exploited if, for example, the worker or the employer th will threaten them deportation or something. Um, and what if there's a person who's on their way to RPI status but there are hiccups in the process? Mm -hmm. Doesn't that mean they won't be able to find work if everyone has to be able to prove they can work. So I was just wondering about that. Yeah, um, th that's a great question. There's going to be a lot of these kinds of questions as we move into implementation. And again, here's another secret. There are protections for workers against what you've been describing in the Senate bill. That everyone in RPI status is presumptively here, is not going to presumptively not go into removal that for workers, employers are required to give workers the documentation that they need, and there's a penalty on the employer if the employer doesn't give the workers that documentation. There's alternative ways of getting documentation, even through affidavits. So we've tried to think as much of that as we could through in the Senate bill. Um, it's not, it's hidden, <laughs> but it's, it's don't there. Don't all I, this I know. <laughs> don't, I'm like, I don't want, don't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Don't disclose all of that. Well, thank you all so much. I'd like to give our speakers a round of applause. Thank you all so much for coming. We'll be having more. Our next session will be October 2nd. Mark it on your calendars. I hope to see you all again. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah.